This is Kevin Hildebrand, cantor at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, inviting you to our campus in November for the annual Good Shepherd Institute Conference, November 5th through 7th. This year's conference includes addresses by Brian Spinks, Paul Grimm, and James Busher, and there's excellent music, including a Bach cantata with the Seminary Contarai and a hymn festival at St. Paul's Lutheran Church. For complete details, visit ctsfw.edu GSI. This is the day which the Lord has made. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. From the rising of the sun to its setting. The name of the Lord is to be praised. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. A reading from Matthew chapter 9. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of the Lord. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly set in the heavens. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. You shall have
The Small Catechism, page 326. What is confession? In the name of Jesus, amen. Very practical thing that we have today. If you want to start teaching about private confession in your congregation, this past Sunday, the 19th Sunday after Trinity, is the day to do it. The gospel for that day is the one that we just heard read, Matthew chapter 9. The lectionary then gives you this present. It drops it right on your plate, so you may as well take advantage of it. When I was in the parish, every year I, I looked forward to this Sunday, the 19th Sunday after Trinity, and to this gospel lesson, because to my lights, it's one of the very most comforting that there is. And the reason for that is this. It teaches me, teaches you, that Jesus wants to deal with me, with you as an individual. That's the whole point. The crowds were pressing in on Jesus. It seems it must have been the Sabbath because it seems like he was in the synagogue doing what he always did in the synagogue, that is, exercising his divine teaching office. At least that's what Mark says. Mark says that he was en oiko. In Hebrew, we might say he was babayat. In other words, he was in the place that the Jews called their synagogue. So all the pious Jews are gathered around him there. Sometimes a prophet actually is received in his own hometown. But of all the sinners gathered around Jesus, just one of them, just one of them stood out. The paralytic. Even if that day it's going to be general proclamation for everybody else, for this one, lying on the floor, it's not. It's going to be private confession and absolution. PCA. Almost as if he had read the small catechism. Well, a person might object to this and say, well, best we can tell, the regular institutionalized practice of private confession seems to have emerged in the world of Celtic Christianity from the 6th century onwards. This was all that business with a soul friendship between the monks. You can think of Columba of Iona or Aidan of Lindisfarne. Someone might go on further and say that while private confession seems to have been institutionalized in the Celtic monasteries as some part of the practices of soul friendship, it wasn't until just 300 years before the Reformation at the Fourth Lateran Council in the year 1215 in the famous decree, Omnis et Utriusque Sexus, that it became institutionalized throughout the Church of the West. So would you call what Jesus and the paralytic did, PCA? Can you call it that? 
Well, to that we might respond that private confession was the lifeblood in many ways of Luther's spirituality. He says that he first learned the gospel in private confession from his father confessor, Johannes von Staupitz. Maybe it's not a tower discovery after all. But maybe that doesn't convince you either. So then we might further say, well, clearly the Evangelical Lutheran Church retained the institution. Augsburg Confession Article 11 says this, concerning confession, they teach that private absolution ought to be retained in the churches. That is prescriptive language. And we might further point out that Luther, even if he's not at pains to underline this because there's no battle to be fought on this one, nevertheless assumed the practice of private confession. He presupposes, in fact, specifically private confession as the ritual zitzim leben of the fifth chief part of the catechism. It's the penitent confessing his own sins one-on-one -on -one in the hearing of his father confessor and the father confessor pronouncing the absolution in the German thou form, singular. So then the question becomes this. Was this just an historical accident? Or more bluntly, <laughs> which ought to make every one of you wanna-be confessional Lutherans squirm in your seats, does the fifth chief part bind you in a quia subscription to more than what the Holy Scriptures teach? After all, it seems like God's perfectly comfortable with corporate actions. He didn't save just Noah, but Noah's wife and his three sons and his three daughters-in-law, all in one saving action. You could call that absolution in a boat. He rescued all the Israelites as a group from Egypt, absolution through the sea. It was to the returned exiles en masse that the law was re-read in Ezra and Nehemiah, who in turn repented en masse. Then, New Testament, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Those are you plurals, ye forms. That was Peter's proclamation to the huge group of Jews gathered in the temple on that day for the Feast of the Weeks in Acts chapter 2. The Lord Jesus, in his obedience, satisfied the law for all men, and in his suffering and death bore the sins of the whole world. Corporate action. And on the last day, on the last day, the Son of Man is going to gather all the nations before himself. Some he's going to absolve, some he's going to bind their sins to them, but it's going to be corporate. It's going to be sheep on his right, goats on his left, and a ye form, come inherit, and a ye form, depart from me, you accursed. So back to the question. Do the fifth chief part and our prime confession, Augsburg Confession 11, bind us beyond the scriptures so that we have to say, well, here our quia subscription has to go out the door.
And the answer is no. Because God and his servants in the Bible didn't just deal corporately with sinners. They did that. They also dealt individually with sinners. Just think about it. From the start of the scriptures on, the Lord God personally bound Cain's sin to Cain, the locking key. Elijah and Ahab alone, earning a moniker that he hasn't shaken quite yet, even thousands of years later, troubler of Israel. Elisha dealt not with all of Syria, but with Naaman alone, the loosing key, freed from leprosy, freed from worshiping his idols. Nathan confronted David alone with David's sin and then absolved him. Peter was sent to Cornelius. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, not in the general resurrection, but in a specific and a personal resurrection. And finally, you know, we think of Jesus healing the blind and the lame and the demon-possessed. That's what the scriptures say about him. But surely what that expression means, as the Gospels so well account, is that he healed one blind man after another. One lame man and then another cast out demons from a girl and then a man and then another girl and a boy and so on. Surely you can multiply these examples many, many, many times over. But do it, because your people in your congregations are going to want to know. And precisely that is what is so particularly comforting about Matthew chapter 9. Jesus dealt with a paralytic alone in the paralytic sins. This is how it went down. Jesus saw the faith of those who brought him, and he acted accordingly. That's a super important point, because here, their faith, Matthew indicates, determined what Jesus did. If they had brought the paralytic thinking, you know, our poor friend, how he complains of his paralysis, but Jesus can help him out, wouldn't Jesus have healed him? But not this time around. Paralytic's malady was much worse, made his par paralysis pale by comparison. He was a sinner. Now, to be sure, we don't know what sins in particular bothered him. Maybe he cursed the day of his birth or even God for making him paralyzed. Perhaps he was sullen or nasty or mean to those who tried to fulfill their vocation by taking care of him. He might have even been lustful. Imagine this, seeing all those beautiful Jewish women around that he'd never be counted worthy to marry. We can only guess at it. But it's not like we actually have to put flesh on it. It's clear. His friends brought him to Jesus so that Jesus could deal with his sins. That was their faith. And the fact that his friends sought redress for his sins means that they knew that they bothered him. A confession. They're not God. They can't see in the heart. And so they dropped the paralytic right before Jesus. And Jesus, in turn, dropped 
everything. He gazed at that man and that man alone, and then he just did it. He said, your sins are being forgiven. Words that attach that man to all of Christ's righteous obedience and a proleptic making over of the atonement in his blood, to be sure, but just as much a then and there conveyance of his riches, his righteousness, his holiness, his mercy, his grace, his forgiveness, all by his word. And the crowds gathered there. Well, some of them sniveled at it. But not the rest. They got it. They got it that it wasn't just the Son of Man forgiving sins, or rather, they got it that it was precisely the Son of Man forgiving sins. The forgiveness of sins is no invisible, noumenal nod of God up there somewhere in his impenetrable majesty. It's an authority given from God in Christ to man. It's a flesh and blood thing. It is real sound waves on real eardrums, and it says what it does, and it does what it says. To hear from your pastor's mouth in private confession, I forgive you all your sins. This is well, it's having your sins forgiven right then and there. Even the sins that bother you. Even the sins that you've convinced yourself must keep you on the outside looking in at God's mercy, no part of it. But with private confession, there is no more second-guessing whether the general absolution applies to your great sin it's because God's servant, your father confessor, has told you otherwise. The words themselves do the job. They forgive sins. And that's why I find this gospel lesson so comforting. It's the comfort, too, of private confession. So you, make good use of it. Teach it in your congregations. Get your people used to it. Any pastor who's been in the parish for longer than a couple years can tell you that it's a central staple in the toolkit to trample Satan underfoot and to restore the joy of salvation to those who are truly troubled by their sin. May God grant you the strength and the wisdom to do his good will. Amen.
In peace, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the gift of divine peace and of pardon with all our heart and with all our mind, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the Holy Christian Church here and scattered throughout the world, and for the proclamation of the gospel and the calling of all to faith, let us pray to the Lord. For this nation, for our cities and communities, and for the common welfare of us all, let us pray to the Lord. Lord have mercy. For seasonable weather and for the fruitfulness of the earth, let us pray to the Lord. Lord have mercy. For those who labor, for those whose work is dif difficult or dangerous, and for all who travel, let us pray to the Lord. For all those in need, for the hungry and homeless, for the widowed and orphaned, and for all those in prison, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. For the sick and dying, and for all those who care for them, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Finally, for these and for all our needs of body and soul, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Almighty God, you invite us to trust in you for our salvation. Deal with us not in the severity of your judgment, but by the greatness of your mercy, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless and preserve us.